0: Welcome to Coming From Left Field where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host Greg Gottels and Pat Cummings. After World War II, many countries were upset about the horrors of war, the Holocaust, and the general depravity of how we treated each other in times of hostile conflict. In response, these countries said, enough is enough, formed the United Nations, and supported a comprehensive list of rights and freedoms that would be considered fundamental to all people, like not killing each other, scaling back torture and maltreatment, supporting freedom of expression, the right to work, to be educated, access to health care, practice religion of your choice, and so on. Now, more than seven decades later, how is this experiment in global governance working? Are we making any progress? Let's discuss this with a scholar, expert, and someone who has had a seat at the human rights table at the United Nations headquarters in Midtown Manhattan. Well, warm greetings. I am really looking forward to our discussion today with uh, Dr. Alfred DeSalis. Uh, we, uh, Greg, and I've been on vacation for three or three weeks or so. So you are the first person we've had on, and uh, it's good to be back in the saddle doing our podcast again. And let me just give you, a, get, get of our guests a little bit of background. You are a prominent scholar, lawyer, historian, and human rights expert, and that's really what we'd like to chat with you about is your uh, expertise in that area. You, you, you got a law degree from Harvard and a PhD in history from University of Guten in Germany. I didn't say that right. Pronounce that for me.
1: It's very close to Hanover. It was uh, Einstein's university. Oh. Very prominent people, Max Planck, everybody was there.
0: Well, I came across uh, you, you uh, uh, from... Your book, the Human Rights Industry, and uh, I unfortunately I, it took me a while to realize that you have a trilogy of three books that are every year in the fall you have published the uh, Building a Just World Order uh the second book is countering mainstream narratives that was my favorite and the third book is the human rights industry and i i've read
1: even more friends and enemies uh than i have the uh, human rights industry is something i've been wanting to write for the last 20 years and i finally got around to it
0: right and uh Anyway, you are a prolific writer writing for a variety of you know counterpunch various uh, 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 different truth out. yeah truth out and uh blog I'll link all this in in our uh, in our show notes. Um, so welcome to the podcast
1: My priority and everything in life is priorities uh my priority right now is to contribute to peacemaking. I am quite concerned, together with my friend Jeff Sachs, with my friend Richard Falk, with uh, Stephen Kincher, that this Karel, European Karel, uh, over whether Ukraine owns Crimea or Russian owns Crimea, uh, we're not going to fight a nuclear war over that. I mean, boundaries have changed... Uh, over the centuries, multiple times, and uh, we're not going to risk the planet over something like that. So whether we like it or not, Russia exists. Whether we like it or not, China exists. So let's have a modus vivendi. We don't have to look at them as our best friends. We don't have to love them. We don't have to admire them. But we also do not unilaterally make enemies out of them. And uh, if you provoke somebody, if you bark at somebody, that somebody is gonna bark back. And uh, that is the main problem, which by the way, the mainstream media has simply not properly reported. I mean, this war did not start on the 24th of February, 22. It started uh, on the 22 of February of 19, uh, what I'm saying, 2014, nine years ago. It started with an illegal, vulgar coup d'etat against a democratically elected president, Viktor Yanukovych, who was the president of all Ukrainians. You don't like Yanukovych. I don't like him either. Okay, wait two years and throw him out in the next elections. But you don't you know, you don't commit horrendous acts of uh, violence uh, in Maidan, uh, of course, financed and organized by us, because we had an interest in that. And uh, Victoria Nuland uh, was there telling the American ambassador whom we wanted for prime minister and whom we wanted for minister of defense, et etc. Et it's shocking. And it's. Public, I mean, you can see it in YouTube, and nothing you know. The, the narrative you get from the New York Times and the Washington Post is that we are the good guys, we are the Democrats, and uh, the Russians are the baddies. It's not that simple,
0: right? We had uh, Dan Kavalik on, uh, he just got back from a trip, a peace trip there, and um. And it was, you know, when you actually see the pictures and you study the history and how that uh, part of the uh, Europe has kind of been a dividing point for years and years. It's it's amazing how much I learned just from uh, looking at his uh, vacation pictures, if you will,
1: and understanding understanding the. And myself back in 1994. That is almost 30 years ago. I was the representative of the secretary general for the elections in uh, Ukraine, twice in March uh, for the parliamentary elections, in June for the presidential elections. I met Kravchuk and I met Kuchma, and I crisscrossed the country, went to the east, and there's no question, Crimea is overwhelmingly Russian, and the Donbass. Donetsk and Lugansk and Kyrgyzstan, etc., is also very largely uh, Russian, and they feel Russian. This is an issue of self-determination. And by the way, the Minsk agreement, which I've read, I've studied, I find them very reasonable, the Minsk agreement did not provide for independence or secession of Donets and uh, Lugans, it provided for autonomy. That's what we call in international law terms, internal self-determination. And that would have been a perfect solution. We would have had no war. The problem is that, as we know from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, in its reports, uh, 80% of the um, shelling uh, and of the violations of the Minsk Agreements came from Ukraine. And uh, as you know, and that was a very clear provocation in January of 2022, Zelensky, uh signed the order uh, to uh, invade, to take Donetsk and Lugansk by force. And uh, imagine, just by analogy, imagine that Butchik uh, the president of Serbia would decide that he's going to invade uh, Kosovo and is going to uh, reincorporate Kosovo into Serbia. I mean, the world would break out and protest violation of self-determination, et cetera, et cetera. And in the case of Donetsk and uh, Crimea, which is very clear, it's a self-determination issue. Right. Uh, the uh, Western media... And the Western politicians say, oh, no, uh, uh, territorial integrity and uh, borders are sacred, etc., etc." et, cetera, et cetera. Such double standards. Right. Um, it, it takes, you know, the credibility away from the institutions. I'd, I'd like to go back just a little bit, because until I read
0: your book, uh, frankly, I, I didn't know what a rapid poor was. UN. You and you work for the United Nations Well, explain what a rapport is and and so we can get a general idea of what you have spent a good part of your career doing at the United Nations.
1: Well, uh, before I joined the United Nations, I was a lecturer in law at the university in Göttingen. Then I went to the Max Planck Institute on uh, public international law in Heidelberg. uh, That is more or less the Academy of International Law uh, in Germany. And it's from there that Theo van Boven, uh, the then director of the uh, Human Rights Office, uh, picked me up. And uh, I joined uh, the United Nations in uh, January of 1981. And then uh, I was the senior lawyer for uh, the Human Rights Committee Human Rights Committee is the specialized quasi-judicial organ established to monitor compliance with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So I was the registrar. I mean, all petitions ran through me, petitions for the Human Rights Committee, Committee Against Torture, Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, and uh, wrote, you know, most of the jurisprudence, because it's usually the secretariat uh that writes uh the uh decisions and I wrote a book about it called the human rights committee uh case law and a book that was uh sold very well at the time and uh then I decided that I wanted to go back to academia and I left in 2003 uh after 22 years of being uh, a United Nations senior official then uh, I taught as the Douglas McKay Brown Chair in International Law at the uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver. I taught at uh, DePaul University in Chicago. I taught at uh, the Human Rights uh, Institute in Galway in uh, Ireland. I taught at the University of Trier in Germany. I gave the master's course uh, in Alcalá de Henares in Spain, that is just outside of Madrid one of the oldest uh, Spanish universities at the uh, Institut uh, uh, de droit constitutionnel at uh, Tunis, uh, et cetera. So I loved you know, this period of my career as an academic and published a great deal. And then I was more or less recycled out of my retirement uh, and became the first uh, United Nations uh, Independent expert on uh, international order. So it's uh, in this capacity, six years working for the office as an independent expert, as a rapporteur, uh, that I actually learned how the system works. Right. Once, when you're a member of the Secretariat, you only see some of the uh, <laughs> comings and goings. But once you are a uh, uh, a rapporteur and you're dealing uh, with governments and you're dealing uh, with uh, Amnesty International and, and Human Rights Watch and uh, the whole instrumentarium, uh, you see uh, uh, the uh, good and the bad and the bad and the good. As the case may be, uh, I um, produced 14 reports for the uh, uh, Human Rights Council and for the General Assembly. And uh reports on all sorts of issues on uh, the right to peace, on uh, the um, uh, right of self-determination of all peoples, not only uh former colonies, and uh, on the International Monetary Fund, on the World Bank and Development uh, and on uh, uh, free trade agreements, on, Uh, investor state dispute settlement mechanisms on uh, the reform of the United Nations. I made very concrete reform proposals uh, for the Security Council, among others, and I published all of that, by the way, in Building a Just World Order. Now, Building a Just World Order uh, has um, a uh, set of principles, what are called the Zayas Principles On international order, 25 principles, which if applied, obviously, uh, you wouldn't have the situation that we have today. But of course, I'm not uh, discovering uh, the wheelbarrow, nor am I uh, discovering uh, the Mediterranean either. I mean, obviously, my 25 principles are based on the United Nations Charter. They are based on key uh, resolutions of the General Assembly, like 2625, that is the Friendly Relations Resolution, uh, Resolution 3314, uh, the definition of aggression, etc. And uh, essentially, the uh, 25 principles have been well received. The then President of the General Assembly, uh, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. Uh, She called my 25 principles a uh, Magna Carta for the 21st century. The problem is that um, the United Nations uh, is not one individual, is not one leader. It's 193 states plus observer states plus civil society, etc. It is uh, immensely complex and there are all sorts of uh uh competitions going on and jealousies going on and so we're not uh, i won't say we are dysfunctional but we are not as effective as we should be and that's why united nations has lost a lot of credibility but one of the things that i say in the human rights industry uh which is not well received in the office of the high commissioner for human rights is that If you look at what's coming out of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, if you look at uh, the resolutions that are adopted in the Human Rights Council, you realize that we are more or less in the service of Washington and Brussels. And uh, there's whole aspects that are simply ignored. And uh, I am very concerned That an institution that is very important, very necessary, like the Human Rights Council, like uh, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, essentially is hijacked, essentially is penetrated by interests that are not human rights interests. And then human rights, instead of being entitlements, your right to be you, my right to be me my right to my own identity to my own opinion to my own ideas etc uh that's not the name of the game the name of the game is scoring points against a geopolitical rival so you use human rights to accuse russia or china or cuba or venezuela of violating human rights and thereby demonizing them so that you can engage in interventionism so that you can sell your interventionism as something more noble, not just a brace in imperialism or neocolonialism. You call it then humanitarian uh, intervention. And I would call it humanitarian imperialism. Uh, In any event, uh, I do have a rather grim diagnosis Uh, for the office, but I also formulate a prognosis. I formulate very concrete, pragmatic proposals how to fix the system. But in order to fix the system, you also need a change of mindset. Uh, I'm an American citizen. I'm also a citizen. But uh, the fact is that we in the United States tend to believe And certainly, my high school education, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and for the country whose et etc., is that we are, by definition, the good guys. We simply do not conceive that uh, we make mistakes. Otherwise, what, what were we doing in Vietnam? What were we doing? Uh, in Afghanistan? What were we doing in Iraq? Were these not aggressions? Were these not war crimes and crimes against humanity? But we have a very underdeveloped sense of self-criticism. And if that doesn't change, uh, we will be incapable uh, of making peace. And I am dismayed at seeing the hawks in the Republican Party. I used to be in the Republican Club at Harvard Law School uh, and the Hawks in the Democratic Party. And whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, what do you get? You get warmongering, you get the uh, military industrial complex, you get more Wall Street and no Main Street, you get a uh, Israel, and nobody gives a damn about the Palestinians, or for that matter, as I was talking to you before we started recording, uh, the genocide going on right now against Armenians uh, in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Nobody remembers that in September 2020, uh, Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, aggressed uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, committed horrendous crimes, including torture, all well-documented by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. The world doesn't care, because, as I said, we don't care about the victims of uh, uh, the Armenians. Uh, We have other geopolitical interests in the area. So nobody is talking about the fact that today, as we're talking, people are starving in Nagorno Karabakh because they have a total blockade uh from uh, uh from uh, Azerbaijan and of course Azerbaijan uh does more or less what uh, Erdogan what uh, Turkey allows Azerbaijan to do i mean the big power here is uh Erdogan and Erdogan does some good things but many 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 bad things uh like etchevite I mean, they invaded, they killed, God knows how many people in Cyprus in uh, 1974. They expelled 200,000 uh, Greeks from the north. And, you know, Cyprus has been Greek for 5,000 years. And here you have Greeks whose ancestors uh, lived in the north of Cyprus uh, for generations and generations and generations, expelled overnight uh from the north uh to the south and uh, completely fascist uh um invasion and uh got away with it right I mean uh, did so- anybody want to uh, to bring Echevit uh before uh, an international criminal court or have an ad hoc tribunal against him? of course not do we want to do it against um uh, Erdogan because of his uh crimes in Syria also not. Nobody cares. I mean, we are only interested in demonizing uh, Russia and China and Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua, and then have the goal to use human rights uh, to do that. That's why I talk about the human rights industry. Now, here is one of my heroes, whom I personally interviewed, uh, Julian Assange. I went to see him. Uh, in 2015 at the Ecuadorian embassy in London because uh, Assange had just uh, released uh, super confidential uh, memos concerning uh, the free trade agreements. You know, the free trade agreements are a bonanza for business and they're horrendous for the rule of law. I mean, uh, the investor state dispute settlement mechanism is a way of circumventing the rule of law circumventing the system of public courts and then giving it uh, to uh, some so-called arbitrators who almost invariably decide for the transnational corporation and cut the regulatory function of the state. So um, I showed you the book, uh, The uh, Trial of uh, Julian Assange by my friend, uh, Professor Niels Meltzer. He was at the time the rapporteur on torture. And certainly Julian Assange has been subjected uh, to psychological torture, to uh, sleep deprivation, horrendous things, and the world doesn't seem to care. Uh, What uh, Niels Meltzer revealed in this book published in um, Verso Books in New York in 2022 uh, is a breakdown in the administration of justice, in the rule of law, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Sweden, in Ecuador, uh, the manner in which the human rights of Julian Assange uh, were uh, grossly uh, violated with impunity. And uh, well, um, Niels Meltzer, now he's a chief uh, legal officer of the international committee of the red cross and um again the book is an incredibly important book on the other hand uh belongs in that category of books i wrote about that in um, countering mainstream narratives it belongs to the category of books without consequences you know about it but you don't talk about it so you you know this is worse than the Dreyfus affair of uh, 1898. You know that this is worse than Emile Zola's uh, Jacques when he was revealing uh, the uh, dysfunction uh, of the military courts uh, in France, but when you have a UN rapporteur revealing the dysfunctions in the administration of justice in the US, UK, Sweden, and Ecuador, the press ignores it.
0: Right. I mean, this, I'm this, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stop I'm gonna stop you here because we're about a third of the way through, and I want to get Greg, I want to get Greg involved in the conversation. Sure. Greg, I what what do you think? Uh, what what are some well, I, questions you might have?
2: I I think this is incredible. I mean, I a very convincing argument, very compelling uh, uh, discussion of what's going on. But it 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 kind of leads you to a certain level of cynicism, me to a level of cynicism. So I have to ask the question. You know, we've seen the failure of the League of Nations, which was also created around high high-minded uh, uh, goals and principles, but it failed, failed abysmally. And now we have a UN, which you've been a part of, uh, and you've painted a picture of how it's abused. Uh, I think a very accurate picture. I have no doubt that everything uh, you said and much, much more that we'll get into, just just points to the fact that it's failing. So why why should we believe that there is a uh, any real hope for an international organization, any any international control over the great powers? Just as there was no control over the great powers before World War One, they had. They had meetings in vienna and other places uh, prior to that we had meetings after world war one uh, designed to keep the peace and i i really appreciate you putting peace in the forefront as the most compelling most overwhelming important uh, uh uh fact but how how can we get out of this muck to put it very crudely well of course
1: humans are imperfect and since humans are imperfect any human institution is going to be imperfect and uh, we have allowed it. We have tolerated it uh, that uh, intelligence services have penetrated the system. I myself on two occasions, two, was approached by the CIA to become a mole. And I said, look, temperamentally, I'm not capable. I am the worst possible spy in the world. I mean, I, I just never learn how to dissimulate, never learn how to hide my feelings or you can read uh, my feelings on my face. But uh, going back to the organization, uh, I do applaud the organization for a phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal uh, performance in standard setting. Without a doubt, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of Eleanor Roosevelt, Charles Malik, René Cassin and Pizzi Chang is an incredibly important document the uh, 10 uh, core human rights treaties because the declaration is not a treaty so it's not enforceable however the treaties are the covenant on civil and political rights the covenant on economic social and cultural rights the convention against torture all of this is an enormous achievement and then you have monitoring bodies i myself was secretary of the human rights committee and I met incredibly brilliant, committed, honest, decent people in the Human Rights Committee. I can tell you uh, Christian Tomushat, uh, Christine Chaney, uh Torkel Opsal. I dedicated uh, this book to the late uh, Torkel Opsal. He was the expert from uh, Norway. And uh, I've met uh, enormously committed people uh, from Amnesty International, take Peter Splinter here in Geneva, take um, uh, uh, uh dam from Human Rights Watch, etc. There are very many good people in the system, but of course there are bad apples. And that is what I'm trying to indicate. We should not tear it down. We need it. The United Nations saved the world from apocalypse back in the cuban missile crisis i mean if we had not had uh the forum that allowed Adley Stevenson III the third to debate uh uh Valentin Zorin. i remember i was this, uh, a high school student in chicago at the time and i watched it on television and uh i was of course afraid <laughs> even we had a a, a, a nuclear um uh, shelter at home as the case may be uh we really were concerned that the world could end that uh nuclear war would hit us and um, the United Nations allowed the two major powers to give off steam to exchange uh, <laughs> uh their uh, uh arguments and in the end, Uh, both Khrushchev and uh, uh, Kennedy decided that uh, they were not going to destroy the world, that they would uh, make a compromise, a quid pro quo. The uh, U.S. took the missiles out of Turkey and Russia took the missiles out of Cuba. And that was a sensible deal. And now in the Ukraine... Uh, we had many sensible deals. I mean, the uh, two treaties that Sergey Lavrov put on the table in uh, December 2021 uh, are extremely reasonable, moderate, a good basis for lasting peace in Europe. What happened, Jens Stoltenberg I still remember hearing him saying Putin he says he doesn't want to have NATO at his frontier well I have news for him he's not going to have less NATO he's going to have a lot more NATO I mean that is throwing the gauntlet in front of the man and Putin unfortunately picked it up and um, the fact is Putin was taken for a ride Uh, Putin negotiated together with the French, the Germans, and the Ukrainians, negotiated the Minsk I and Minsk II agreement. As we know now, both anglo Merkel, at that time, German Chancellor, and uh, uh, François Hollande, at that time, French uh, President, both admitted that uh, they actually only entered the Minsk agreements in order to gain time so that the Ukrainian army could be properly trained and so that uh, Ukraine could have uh, the necessary weapons uh, to attack the people uh, of Donetsk and uh, Lugansk. But the fact is, here we have a crucial issue of self-determination. As the International Court of Justice uh, explained in its advisory opinion uh, of 2010 on Kosovo, territorial integrity is not absolute. And territorial integrity can only be used externally. It cannot be used against your own people if your own people are demanding uh, self-determination, then you have to address those grievances. And that's what happened in Kosovo. Milosevic canceled uh, the autonomous status uh, of uh, Kosovo. And that led to the creation of the Kosovo Liberation Army, etc., and the war and NATO's uh, intervention. Uh, by the way, Natron's intervention in 1999 was clearly a violation of the UN Charter. So when I hear people saying, uh, oh, Putin, he has uh, an aggressor, he has violated international law, he has violated the UN Charter, sure, he has, he did. But well, so did we. The fact is that nato's uh, interventions in yugoslavia were illegal they were not backed up by a resolution uh, of the united nations security council under chapter seven same thing goes for afghanistan for uh, iraq um there was a resolution by the way uh with regard to libya uh, that was resolution 1973 uh, of 2011 and that's the one that was <laughs> that's how you see how human rights can be weaponized. Uh, the Security Council uh, adopts a resolution uh, supposedly for humanitarian assistance of the people uh, in Libya. And that was then misused by NATO to bomb the hell out of Gaddafi and eventually get Gaddafi killed. And uh, 12 years later, you have total chaos uh, in Libya. So um I remember discussing this with a uh, Russian um, diplomat in New York uh, because one of my reports uh, uh, to the uh, General Assembly proposed doing away with the veto power and how to, not from one day to the other, uh, gradually, you know, requiring not one but two vetoes uh, and limiting the number of uh, uh, subjects which you could veto. In any event, it's it's an interesting proposal, I think quite viable. Uh, In any event, uh, the uh, Russian diplomat told me, look, Zayat, we trusted the U.S., France, and Great Britain back in uh, uh, 2011. Uh, We did not vote for Resolution 1973, but we abstained. So the resolution went through. That will not happen to us again. We trusted you, and you took a resolution that was intending to do humanitarian assistance in order to wage an all-out war and get regime change. Uh, U.S., U.K., uh, and France bear an enormous guilt for the disaster that visited uh, Libya, and that continues to visit uh, Libya. So uh, don't expect um, the Soviet Union, or rather the uh, Russian Federation, uh, to cooperate uh, with the West until the West becomes trustworthy. One of the greatest mistakes of the West, as George Foster Kennan wrote in the uh, New York Times back in 1997, uh a fatal error the Eastern expansion of NATO against oral agreement in 1989, 1990, 1991 that had been given by George H.W Bush and his Secretary of State James Baker to uh Gorbachev. again uh you if you break your word, on something as fundamental as that. And uh, you must realize that your credibility has suffered, that uh, the other party is not going to believe you. Whatever you're saying, they won't believe you anymore because they trusted you once and you lied to them. It's the same thing. Who believes American propaganda? If you recall all the propaganda... Uh, run-up to the uh, Iraq war with the weapons of mass destruction and uh, the idea that uh, uh, Saddam Hussein wanted to build an atomic bomb. I mean, uh, if you read the New York Times and the Washington Post in the months of January, February, uh, and early March of 2003, uh, I mean, the kind of warmongering that was waged by us against uh, Iraq, just in order to steal their oil, just in order to have regime change and have a stronger American presence uh, in uh, in the Middle East. Well, that has consequences, right? And, the only the, uh, the
0: only war NATO has won is the information war. You mentioned that in no, your in, in your by book. By the
1: way, this is the best book in the field, huh, uh, Professor John. Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago, uh, The Great Delusion. He goes into an analysis of the realist, the neorealist, the constructivist, uh, perspectives uh, on war. And this amazing fantasy uh, of the uh, United States uh, that we have kind of like a God-given right, an emission. mission, to bring democracy, human rights, and happiness to the rest of the world. Uh, I mean, it's incredible arrogance because uh, the rest of the world doesn't want any of it. They don't want it from us. As General Assembly Resolution 60-1 bar one of 24 October uh, 2005, that was the outcome uh, document of the uh, summit. Uh, it says very clearly that... Uh, Nobody owns democracy, and there's not one single model, certainly not the United States model of democracy. We are not a democracy. We are an oligarchy. In any event, democracy, if anything, we here in Switzerland, I'm also a Swiss citizen, here in Switzerland we have referenda like uh, 20 times a year. I mean, we're going to have now a new one on the 10th of uh, of, of June, and I vote in every single referendum, et cetera. We are consulted. We are informed by the government. Uh, In the United States, uh, you have uh, a Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and they make difference on some uh, points, basically personal or personality points. Uh, But uh, bottom line, uh, we are hawks. Both parties are hawks. They're not interested in peace. They're interested in the business of war we're business we're war profiteers at the expense by the way of the europeans it is it is surrealistic all the europeans have shot themselves in the foot again and again that they should do it once or twice i could even tolerate that but the fact when i hear (laughs) chancellor uh schultz speak i say the man is mad i mean he has screwed his country He has screwed his country's uh, economy. Uh, And uh, well, what can you say? It's hopeless when these really second and third-rate politicians uh, occupy positions of power uh, like Olaf Scholz uh, or like uh, Emmanuel Macron. Emmanuel Macron may be a very handsome man, but that's about all you can say for him. I mean, he is, in a way, prettier than Marie Le Pen, <laughs> but that's not saying much.
0: Before we came on, Greg was talking about an involvement in Pittsburgh with an anti-war movement trying to get peace in Ukraine. And Greg, recount the story about how they wanted to frame that from the, you know, this is your left group of people trying to stop the war. Um
2: broader than that, Pat. I mean, we have a a group that's been uh, uh, out in the streets every two weeks, every month, uh, for years now, uh, against nuclear weapons. And we're particularly targeting one of the local banks, PNC Bank, because they invest in nuclear weapons. So we're talking about a broad section of Catholic left, Catholic center, actually, but people that are committed, pacifists, to anti-war, to anti-nuclear war, and most importantly, to peace. And so we're trying to organize, because of the situation in Ukraine, some of the folks have seen the headlines around half a million people dying. They're, of course, alarmed, and they want the war to just stop. And so we have uh, part of the conventional left in the United States that's linked up with the Democratic Party in particular, and they come forward and they say, you can't make a demand for peace or negotiate now. You've got to put Russia out in front of that demand. And that's what they're insisting upon. Of course, to my pleasure, most of our left, most of our group have come down on this person and say, no, we want, we want to stop the war. We don't want to grind your axes in our movement. But that's typical in the United States today. There's, there's no anti-war movement here. There's no peace movement here. And it's all log because of this picking of sides. Well, I'm on Russia's side. I hope Russia will win this. No, no, it's a self-determination question for Ukraine. They must be able to determine their own fate. All put in a very simple picture, and all creating this logjam, whereas the broad general peace movement theme from historically is peace now. Let's just have a peace. And I think you know that that's what we're looking at uh, uh, in terms of this Ukraine crisis. It's it's frozen. Uh, our our movements, our political movements and going forth. And I, I, you know, I don't see see a way out of that. I don't see the UN as being helpful. I don't see human rights regimen- You're right, the UN
1: is not being helpful. Antonio Guterres has missed one opportunity after another to make a clear statement about this war. Not the blah, blah, that it is an act of aggression. Of course it's an act of aggression. How about the prehistory? I mean, you must realize that uh, the threat of the use of force and what else is NATO's expansion. If NATO, a military alliance, expands to your very frontier and arms Ukraine to the teeth, that is a menace, an existential menace. And uh, Putin understood it as an existential menace. And he kept reminding the West that enough is enough. Uh, And he wanted, and that was the purpose of the two treaties. By the way, if you go on the internet, you can find the treaty drafted by uh, Lavrov uh, for uh, a sustainable peace, a security architecture Uh, for Europe. One treaty with NATO, one treaty with the United States. Both very moderate, both very reasonable. In any event, uh, uh, here, uh, the root cause of the war, without a doubt, uh, is NATO expansion. And then the immediate uh, cause is uh, the Maidan coup d'etat, against the democratically elected president of all Ukrainians, Viktor Yanukovych. And then over the eight years, constant violations of the Minsk agreements by Ukraine, notwithstanding the Normandy uh, format, notwithstanding uh, all of the meetings of OSCE, all of the efforts uh, made uh, on the part of uh, Russia to settle this peacefully, to settle it peacefully in accordance with the UN charter, in accordance with the principles of territorial integrity, the principles of sovereignty, the principles of uh, self-determination of peoples. Uh, The Minsk Agreement was a good agreement and uh, it was violated primarily by Ukraine, and then you know to top it off, when Shalinsky uh, uh, started saying that uh, he was going to uh, uh, attack uh, uh, Donetsk and uh, and Lugansk and take them by force, uh, that is uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. Personally, I would not have attacked. I would not have invaded, as Putin did. Of course, I don't know enough uh, to say uh, whether uh, the level of threat uh, against Russia was such that it required what you might call preventive or preemptive uh, self-defense. Putin, of course, has invoked preemptive self-defense, except that doesn't exist in international law. When uh, George W. Bush uh, invoked preemptive self-defense, uh, he was talking nonsense because it doesn't exist. Article 51 of the UN Charter does not allow. You need this initial military aggression, which then you cannot use that as an excuse for an all-out war as Israel did uh, in 2006 uh, against the... Uh, uh uh lebanon i mean if there's been some kind of a skirmish uh on the um border uh then uh you report that to the secretary general you report that to the security council uh and you you can respond in kind keeping the proportionality but you don't bomb the hell out of uh, lebanon Uh, with cluster bombs, which, by the way, are illegal because they're indiscriminate, uh, violate the Geneva Conventions of 1949 and the Additional Protocols of 1977. In any event, that um, uh, response by uh, Israel 2006 was clearly illegal. But the response, uh, or rather the aggression of the United States in uh, 2003 against Iraq, which uh, uh, George W. Bush tried to sell to the world as preemptive uh, self-defense doesn't hold any water. It is uh, just uh, garbage. Now, uh, what I would like to see in the world is another president like Jimmy Carter. I had the honor of meeting uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, being at the Carter Center uh, for Conferences. And uh, he autographed many of his books for me. And uh, I kept a a good correspondence with him and with his assistant, uh, Professor David Carroll. Here's a man of principle. Here's a man of morality. He's a man of ethics. He is a man who really contributed to human rights. And uh, again, the United States has produced Great people. And I think uh, Jimmy Carter belongs in that category. I think that uh, Richard Falk and Jeffrey Sachs uh, and Steve Kinzer and Dan Kovalik and um, uh, so many others, uh, William Bloom. You remember William Bloom and his book Killing Hope. Uh, These people are uh, people of conscience. They're not people of, of, of opportunism. They're not people who are there uh, just simply uh, for the limelight uh, and for the glory of the day. They do have uh, a roadmap uh, to justice in the United States and justice in the rest of the world. Uh, but um, everything by now is uh, penetrated. Everything is corrupted by the military-industrial complex. The military-industrial complex uh, finances directly or indirectly the think tanks, whether it be uh, the Brookings or or the Heritage or the um, uh, American, uh, um, well, there's so many uh, NGOs, uh, I rather um, think tanks. And basically they get money so that they write some legalistic text that uh, will give you the impression that what uh, the government is doing is legal. Not only legal, it's moral. Not only moral, it is compatible uh, with human rights, etc. It it is dismaying to witness the level uh, to which we have uh, regressed. We have a
0: you, you, you said uh, in your book, you're either with us or you're against us. And um, I, 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 I would like you to elaborate. I learned a lot from your book about um, w- why we can't just take uh, Putin and take him to The Hague and George Bush and take him to The Hague and all of these other people that have c- committed these obvious war crimes and how they directed the policy why, you know, when, when you're bombing civilians, why can't we have some sense of accountability as we did at the end of uh, World War II? And you mentioned that's because they had an unconditional surrender and that we just don't have the apparatus to make people accountable for atrocities. Our side, their side, uh, you know, just it, it, it it's. It, it seems like such a simple solution to the problem. Just at a well, certain I, point... I,
1: I have always been rather skeptical about uh, the value of international criminal, uh, criminal law and of the value of the International Criminal Court. You see, uh, if you had a thoroughly independent, impartial, uh, knowledgeable court uh, that would judge uh, without double standards uh, all uh, violations of the Geneva uh, and Hague conventions, Uh, then I would believe in the ICC. But the ICC started badly and has gone from bad to worse. The ICC is no more uh, than a neo-colonial tool uh, that has been used hitherto uh, against African uh, ousted leaders and military, but was never used against uh, Benjamin Netanyahu or against Ariel Sharon or against Mohammed bin Salem or against um, uh, uh, the Azerbaijani uh, President Aliyev, or against um, any Western uh, leader. Certainly, uh, Tony Blair and George W. Bush uh, deserve uh, to be tried and um, uh, convicted. But again, punishment does not bring the dead uh, back to life, nor does it undo uh, the enormous devastation that war visits uh, on the victims, especially in a proxy war like the one in uh, Ukraine. That's why my 10-point blueprint uh, for peace uh, does not provide for a role of the International Criminal Court in prosecuting uh, uh, Putin or Shalinsky, or for that matter, Jen Stoltenberg, um, I believe that violations of the Geneva Conventions um, should be investigated and prosecuted by each army's legal division. That is an obligation in all four Geneva Conventions of 1949, there are always uh, three or four articles at the end of the convention, imposing an, uh, an obligation on each party to investigate all reports of war crimes and to try their own. That would give credibility to it. But when it uh, is Alfred, you- separate,
2: yeah. Let me interrupt you. Uh, You you speak about who's going to guard the guardians. I think that's a a pregnant statement, and it really is what we're kind of evading here. We have a long history, a century-long history, uh, of, of great power politics. And every international institution that's been created has been dominated by the great powers. Isn't the answer lie in terms of explaining to people how the great powers operate. What is it that drives the great powers? That's not a feature of the UN or the League of Nations or any other Amnesty International. They don't delve into that, and they can't delve into that. But are we doing a disservice by placing them in between revealing to people and impressing upon people that we live in an era of great power politics, and they're going to dominate these international institutions, whereas the courts, the UN... Uh, whether it's going to be the forces that go into Africa to enforce things. We dominate all that. The great powers do. There's a tendency today, I think, for people to understand how the United States has been the big dominator. But it's not just the... It's always been big powers. And if the U.S. weren't there, there'd be another big power, the U.K., whatever. So how do we get to the root cause? How do we get people to react to great power politics? Well
1: information if the American people were aware uh, of the abuses committed by Washington, by Brussels, by London, by Berlin, by Moscow, etc, if they knew uh, how the game is being played, they would probably judge differently because uh, the mainstream media, has been projecting a narrative that is a uh, cocktail of uh, fake news and fake history and fake law. And uh, I am uh, very concerned about the level of brainwashing of the American people. And what I would like to see the American people, a larger percentage of the American people watching programs like your program watching max blumenthal watching uh aaron mate watching uh, watching gray zone and pushback and the real news network and amy goodman and democracy now and the intercept etc and informing themselves i mean uh, of course most people are concerned with their families their wife children grandchildren etc how to make ends meet etc they're not interested in international politics where very few people are interested in international politics so that's not where it's at on the other hand government uh, has an obligation to consult the population on essential questions that is the essence of democracy i mean if without all of the war propaganda and all of the fake news given by new york times cnn etc if the american people had been asked uh, in uh, January, February 2022. Do you want the United States uh, to send a uh, $100 billion of military aid to, to Russia, or would you prefer that that $100 billion be spent for education and healthcare and infrastructure? I have no doubt what the answer of the American people would have been. On the other hand, that question is never paid, posed. Is not posed in the United States. It's not post in Germany. It's not posed uh, in uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, they assume that representative democracy means that if uh, there is a parliament, uh, the parliament can make the decision on behalf of you. But of course, my senator doesn't represent me. My congresswoman doesn't represent me. Do you really believe in this fantasy? But most Americans seem to believe in it. And uh, the only way we can get out of uh, this uh, impasse, the only way we can solve this or answer this question, uh, quis custodiet ipsos custodes, who will guard over the guardians, only ourselves. And that's why I have been an advocate for many years of a proposal uh, that many uh, presidents, including um Jimmy Carter used to like uh the idea of a world parliamentary assembly uh of a civil society parliamentary assembly because again I worked in the system for so many years that I know the diplomats do not necessarily represent the interests of their respective uh peoples I mean the uh, diplomats are elites who uh, are not necessarily committed uh, to the truth or to justice, Uh, they are uh, committed to keeping the elites in power. And uh, so uh, my, shall we say, respect uh, for uh, diplomats is always mellowed uh, by the uh, realization that they belong to a special class. That's why I would like to democratize more uh, the uh, exercise of uh, power and a world that, uh, parliamentary assembly or United Nations parliamentary assembly with consultative, uh, functions that would be, uh, consulted by the secretary general, that would be consulted by the general assembly, that would be consulted by the security council, uh, would be helpful. I mean, we need more people. We need whistleblowers. We need more people like uh, Ed Snowden. As you know, I dedicated my new book, uh, The Human Rights Industry, uh, to the whistleblowers. And if you permit, I will read out to you uh, from the uh, dedication of the book uh, something I very strongly feel about. This book pays tribute to human rights uh, defenders, true human rights defenders, commends the enormous courage of thousands of whistleblowers worldwide, women and men who choose conscience and civic responsibility over personal convenience, risking their lives, liberty, and careers to serve democratic societies and open our eyes to corruption, lies, scams, covers up, and crimes perpetrated by governments, corporations, and financial institutions, not only governments. I mean, consider uh, corporations and banks, wh- how they have <laughs> taken uh, the American people for a ride. And uh, I don't know whether you know the names, but uh, I start my list with Julian Assange, Bill Binney, Joe Darby, Antoine Del Tour, uh, Thomas Drake, Sybil Edmonds, Daniel Ellsberg, the uh, late uh, Daniel Ellsberg, whom I very much revered, uh, Vera English, Peter Feldman. there are enormous numbers of whistleblowers. They get crushed by the American um, uh, so-called justice uh, system. and they get they actually do an important service to society by revealing the crimes committed in our name and then they line in jail for it, including uh, Jeffrey Sterling, uh, 2002 and 2004, uh, who uh, brought out uh, the CIA revelations on Operation uh, Merlin. In any event, I I uh, put a list of uh, some uh, thirty whistleblowers, but of course there are hundreds, and we need them more. And I end with a quotation by Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, by the way, I'm a member of a San Francisco-based Uh, NGO called Eleanor Lives. (laughs) Go on the website www.eleanorlives.org and you will find our proposal for an International Court of Human Rights. You will find uh, a a new, shall we say, unitary uh, International Bill of Rights. It's very interactive. Uh, We want uh, input from everybody. But look at this quote by uh, Eleanor. True patriotism springs from a belief in the dignity of the individual, freedom and equality, not only for Americans, but for all people on earth, universal brotherhood and goodwill, unquote. Now, uh, uh, Eleanor was ahead of her time uh but um and of course eleanor was not a saint or uh, perfect but she did advance a great deal i was about to say uh we americans have this uh, uh belief in progress uh and there has been a lot of progress uh, in human rights terms i mean certainly uh there's been an enormous advance uh in the recognition uh, of women's rights there has been uh, a very welcome uh, abolition progressive abolition of capital punishment uh but there's also been regression and there is regression today i would say one of the most serious elements of regression is the cancel culture uh the moment uh, that you express an opinion uh, that uh, is contrary uh, to the mainstream, you risk losing your job. You risk uh, being ostracized. You risk um, uh, not getting a promotion or not getting a uh, uh, tenure. I can think of uh, two immediate examples, Ward, uh, Churchill and Denver and uh, Norman Finkelstein at DePaul University. I also taught at DePaul University. Now, Norman was uh, probably the most popular professor of political science uh, and of international relations. But what happened, uh, he got into a fight with Alan Dershowitz of Harvard uh, Law School. And uh, there was an enormous campaign uh, to uh, discredit Uh, Norman, and to uh, call him an anti-Semite, although he is the son uh, of a survivor from Majdanek, his mother, and a survivor uh, from Auschwitz, his father, born in Brooklyn. In any event, um, uh, although the faculty had voted uh, unanimously to grant him tenure, uh, the university
0: was blackmailed. Yeah, we had Norman on. He was just such a wonderful guest. And uh... I'm trying to get Bandy Lee on who wrote the the psychiatrist that wrote the book about the 21 different um professionals that wrote a, a psychologist that condemned uh, um or that diagnosed the problem with Trump and she was canceled also with a, with a Alan Dershowitz project she was you know knocked out of Yale medical school so
1: No no it, it's 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 uh really a major problem, retrogression uh, in uh, human rights uh, because uh, we have ushered in the phenomenon of self-censorship. I mean, we have uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World in practice. It's not so much uh, Orwell's 1984 Uh, It was not so much uh, the Ministry of Truth and the Ministry of Love, etc. No, 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 no. I mean, uh, people actually quite softly and gradually have learned to accept this, and they have withdrawn, they have accepted the fact that they are numbers, that they are consumers, that they have no identity. Uh, And uh, that is a a huge tragedy, but that is what has happened uh, to us. And there is a retrogression in uh, many other fields, for me, uh, squandering uh, money uh, for weapons. When uh, education is going downhill in the United States, it's going downhill rapidly in Germany. I mean, I've read studies about that. That is serious. But um, the mainstream media, which is, of course, owned by the conglomerates, etc., and they depend on the military-industrial complex, they're not going to publish you or me. Uh, I mean, in my six years as UN rapporteur, I was unable to place one single op-ed in uh, the New York Times or in the Washington Post, and I sent many, huh? Uh, I was unable to be interviewed uh, by uh, CNN or any of these uh, mainstream outfits because I don't sing the song they want me to sing.
2: Right.
1: So they don't give me a platform. And what happens to me happens uh, to many others. And uh, Jeffrey Sachs, oh uh, my, very much revere, Jeffrey Sachs was even yanked off the air When he was talking uh, in um, Bloomberg and he was mentioning the fact that uh, uh, very probably it was the United States uh, that was behind uh, the blowing up of uh, Nord Stream, uh, well, all hell broke loose and they yanked him off. So that kind of direct censorship I've never had that experience because I'm just not big enough. I'm not important. Well,
0: enough. now that you've been on our podcast uh, this will you, you 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 may get invited on MSNBC. I don't know, who knows. We'll we'll see. We'll see. Hey Greg, do you have any <laughs> no, final no, no, thoughts? No, no, do you want to you want to wrap things no, up with any no, final I thoughts? I can't
2: imagine. I can't imagine we could find a more uh informed, uh more erudite uh, discussant of these issues around uh international policy u.n um global politics than, than alfred i it's been a seminar and i really appreciate it i uh i'm i'm, I'm glad you agree to come on with us and i hope we can maybe do this again
0: yeah yeah i it uh, i agree your books were just i just devoured them they were wonderful and we'll save for next time uh, the when you hitchhiked across the uh, United States in 1970, as Gosh did I, <laughs> as, as did I, and we can talk about our we can talk about uh, what it was like going through Wyoming with a ponytail. So. Uh, yeah,
1: how how I froze in Yellowstone Park because yeah. I didn't have proper clothes.
0: All right. Well, we'll get we'll get back to that. So, listen. Thank you. This has just been. Um, it's just been great. you're You're a real treasure uh, and um, maybe we'll we'll chat with you again um, when you do your next book next year as you seem to be. Are you on your are you on another book?
1: I'm on another book, but you will be surprised what it is. Uh, I'm a translator. Uh,
0: you have seven seven languages, right?
1: Okay, yes. And I love translating as a form of therapy. There was a time when I was being mobbed pretty badly and I started translating Rilke into English. I've also translated Rilke into French and into Spanish, but uh, I published uh, the first complete translation of Rilke's second cycle of poems called Ladenopfer, which did very well. It's still in print with uh, 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 Red Hen Press in Los Angeles. And uh, because of that book, I was discovered by Suhrkamp in Germany. And they asked me whether I would want to translate uh, Hermann Hesse's 220 poems uh, collection called Das Lied des Lebens, uh, The Song uh, of Life. It's a wonderful collection. People know Hermann Hesse because of his novels Siddhartha and Damian and, and uh, Glassbell and Spiegel, etc. cetera. Uh, they well. don't know him as a poet. He's a wonderful poet, very sensitive. And uh, well, I did the 220 translations and uh, now I'm going through them one by one because translations that I did three months ago, I read them again and say, "Mm, not exactly. It's not quite. So uh, it's taken me a while and I hope that in uh, two, three months time, I will be able to deliver the 220 poems to Suhrkampferlach and that they will put put it out uh, in, you know, like my Brilke translation, one side, the original German, the other side, uh, my translation. But it is actually, I'll I'll send you a couple just to have a taste. Uh, I think there's one poem of his which I think is breathtaking uh, in its simplicity. It says, before the world uh, sinks in uh, wars and wrongs let us rejoice in the things that do remain water the frail uh, flowers comma sing them songs i the, the image of singing songs to little flowers i just love that line and uh, it's a poem called uh, "Late Summer," which actually applies to us right now. I'll send you the late summer yeah, poem. That's it, a good. It,
0: that's a good place to to stop. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye now. My
1: pleasure.